welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Andy Lord, Commissioner for Transport for London, to this episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast series. If you'd like to hear how Andy got as lucky as he did in his career, then please do come and join us for what I think is an absolutely inspirational conversation. Andy Lord, Transport Commissioner for Transport for London, a very, very warm welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. I am so happy that you've uh, been able to find the time in your, what I imagine is an absolutely bonkers diary, to uh, to have this conversation with me. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for the invite, uh, Nina. Delighted to be here uh, and follow in uh, so many prestigious uh, footsteps or podcasts uh, ahead of me. So, uh, no, delighted. Thank you. We certainly have. I'm so proud of the uh, the guests that we've had so far. We've had a real um, eclectic mix of different people with different career stories to tell. Um, we know that our audience really appreciate hearing um, hearing your story. They, we, we like a good story of kind of how did it all begin? Why transport? Why have you been where you've been? And what have you done? Um, so I'm going to hand over to you and ask you to take me through um, from the from the very first part where you decided that's the first job I want to go and do, up until the do- job you're doing now, and transport commissioner for transport for London, I think it's quite a big job, and I'm quite interested to know what a kind of week in the life um, looks like. So I'm going to hand over to you. Tell us your story. Thanks, Nina. Um, I mean, I guess uh, ultimately, so I got here by accident. Um, certainly as transport commissioner, but we can. Uh, I can explore that uh, later on, I guess. Um, so how did I end up in transport? I, uh, I've i always been passionate, uh, always had a childhood dream to be a pilot, because um, I actually come from Derbyshire, uh, and then grew up my um, as a, a young child on the Isle of Man. Um, oh, okay. So I um, traveled backwards and forwards, either by ferry uh, from uh, Liverpool, uh, or flying from Manchester, uh, and then obviously the Isle of Man has such a rich uh, transport heritage with the steam railways and the electric yeah. railways. And as a young lad, um, was just really interested in all of those. Uh, but so I always aspired to be a pilot. Um, and then when I was taking my, uh, so I took my A-levels based on, uh, in you know, in the 80s to be a pilot, you had to do maths and physics. Um, I wasn't particularly good at either of them, but managed to uh, scrape my way through and get a couple of A-levels in those plus chemistry. Um, and my uh, single parent family brought up by my mum uh, and the careers uh, advisor at school said, well, you should really probably go to university. Uh, so you get some qualifications. You know, if you want to be a pilot, that's great, but get some qualifications. Mm-hmm. So I decided to apply for engineering. And then we all recognised that my mother wouldn't be able to afford to point me through university. So I applied for sponsorship. And, and this was really the first sort of uh, pathway choice, if you like. So I applied for sponsorship at what was then British Aerospace, uh, Commercial Division and British Airways, albeit never really had any intention of, if I was fortunate to be offered a sponsorship with British Aerospace to take it. 
Uh, and that clearly came out in the interview process when I was asked, well, why do you want the job and why do you want to work for us? And I said, well, I don't really. So that, that sort of <laughs> led to a fairly short um, <laughs> recruitment process. Um, but I filled out the sponsorship for British Airways. And British Airways had two sponsorships at the time. This is in the late 80s, one for being a cadet pilot and one for being sponsored through university to do engineering. I uh, always wanted to be a pilot. But I thought I'd, I'd take a bit more time to fill out the application. So I filled out my engineering sponsorship on the Saturday and dated it and then filled out my completed my pilot sponsorship form, which I'd been working on for about two weeks and dated that on the Sunday. And still to this day, having actually then had worked for BA for 26 years, still can't believe they're efficient enough to say, we, we, we know you've applied for two positions in the company. We can't accept two applications. So we've gone with the one that was dated first, which was the engineering sponsorship. <laughs> so, so be it. Um, the universe really, works in mysterious ways, it, I would it say. It is. It was a bit of a sliding doors moment to yeah. some extent. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I was very fortunate. Um, uh, there was about uh, 600 applicants, so not huge compared to the numbers that you see these days. And 19 of us were taken on, and, and I was one of those, and very fortunate to be sponsored through uh, university by BA, uh, did a mechanical engineering degree, and uh, an accelerated apprenticeship. Uh, uh, so I did my degree at Manchester Uni. Uh, I worked at Manchester Airport uh, in the Christmas and the Easter holidays, and then came down to Heathrow to do my apprenticeship for, for my whole my university term. And I absolutely loved it, and it gave me great experience i loved airplanes i loved aviation i was you know getting hands-on practical experience rather than sitting in a lecture theater listening to all sorts of very clever people who'd written all sorts of doctorates and theses on engineering that frankly were brilliant people but it really didn't interest me particularly mm. i was more interested in getting a spanner in my hand and and going working on the airplanes yeah and it and it gave me a real experience of how uh, interacting with different people from different backgrounds. Um, you know, uh, aviation in the late 80s was quite a tough place, um, very male-dominated. Um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of technology, uh, but it was starting to transition from aircraft that were designed in the in the 50s and 60s to aircraft that were you know, designed in the 80s and 90s and, and really moving forward to being more software-based industry. Anyway, managed to... Um, uh, get my degree, which I'm very proud of. Um, first person in my family to go to university since my my grandfather in the early uh, in the early 1900s, um, and then finished my training with BA in uh, spring 1993. And the graduates, all of us, we, we had opportunities to go and uh, apply for permanent roles. Uh, and I was very very fortunate. Uh, I got uh, a role that was created, and I was sent out to Seattle. Uh, to work at Boeing uh, okay. as part of a small team of engineers uh, who British Airways were the launch customer for, for the Boeing 777, right. uh, which is now a workhorse of, of long-haul aviation. Uh, but at the time, it was the latest generation uh, big twin-engine aeroplanes, and I was fortunate enough to be sent out there, supposedly for two years, um, and uh, worked embedded in with Boeing uh, on the design of the aircraft, uh, seeing how we can make it more maintenance friendly, reduce the weight of it, improve the cost efficiency of it, uh, and as well as take in-service issues on our other fleets to see how they could be designed out uh, on the 777. 
but after six months and having a, an, the most amazing time as a 22 year old, um, you know, in Northwest Pacific USA, uh, I actually uh, applied for a job and was promoted and came back to BA uh, in London to be a design engineer uh, on a couple of aircraft types, right. um, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10 uh, and the ATP, which is a British built turboprop airplane flying around the Highlands and Islands of Scotland in those mm. days. And those roles progressed. Uh, I had design authority, was responsible for the safety and reliability of those fleets. Uh, and then I got moved on to Concorde um, and I became the lead design engineer uh, for BA's Concorde fleet for all the mechanical and fluid systems. So everything from the drooping nose to the undercarriage to the flying controls to the life wow. support systems, etc. which is still, I would say, still my proudest achievement. Um, because there's not many people who can say they've held a position like that. Absolutely um, not. No, and, that's uh, that's that's quite something to say. It, just yeah. by pure coincidence, I was um, I was at a um, an event yesterday at, in Manchester, Manchester Airport, underneath yeah. the wings of Concorde. Yeah. So yeah. they use it as um as a, a conference venue now, don't they? they do. the, the hangar yeah. where the where the uh, plane yeah. is, and it's yeah quite something to behold. You know, it's kind of sitting underneath it. Yeah, so I, I worked on that very aeroplane, uh, yeah. on, on the whole fleet of seven. And I have to say, despite everything I do in this job and I've done in, in senior roles, still the most stressful role I've ever had because oh, really? right. we were literally on call, not 24-7 because the fleet didn't fly 24-7, but actually they were so maintenance intensive and because we were, we were the world leader in supersonic flight. Uh, and supersonic aircraft engineering. You know, Concorde flew more supersonic hours than all of the world's air forces put together. Mm. And we were doing it with people sitting in civilian clothes without oxygen uh, tanks and uh, drinking champagne. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, the first time I signed my name... Terribly off, British. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the first time I signed, put my name to dispatch an aircraft with a new part on board, uh, was without doubt the, 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 that's when I realised the sort of responsibility I held as a design engineer. So, um, yeah. and actually, when the very last aeroplane uh, was flown to Filton in in Bristol, which is where uh, Alpha Foxtrot is, uh, that was still that went there in late two thousand and three. I think it was might be in early two thousand and four. Uh, I'd finished on the aeroplane in uh, nine, late ninety six. That aircraft was still flying under an authorization that I'd given it in 1996. Right. So even then, I, I sighed a bit of a sigh of relief that um, <laughs> it was safely down. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, so that that was uh, so engineering for about seven years. Then I moved in, took an opportunity to apply for a management role, and it, I learned quite a lot about this. We went through a, re, a redesign of our engineering department at BA in in 1996, and it was all about making us less specialist and more broad in our um, experience and responsibilities. Right. And I applied to be a team leader, um, but I was turned down because I didn't have any, uh, what was called then man management experience. Uh, okay. People management, people yeah. leadership. Yeah. And I got really frustrated with my senior manager at the time. I said, well, how am I ever going to get any if you don't appoint me into a role where I will be leading people? So I applied for a, a, an opportunity based in Glasgow uh, in our flight operations department um, uh, 
as a bit of a long shot, uh, was working on the fleet of aircraft, the ATPs that I referred to earlier, mm. um, to work in the flight crew department, flight operations, and I'd been responsible for all the flight procedures for the pilots, safety investigations, working closely with engineering, all the rest of it. Uh, and blow me, I only went and got it and was successful. Um, and I said to uh, my then, uh, so Joe, who's now my wife, uh, we got engaged that year and I said, look, I'm applying for this job. So she moved into my flat and I promptly moved to Glasgow. Um, so uh, I said, don't worry, it'll only be for you know 18 months or so and then I'll be back. Six years later, having uh, basically um, held a number of roles across uh, the UK regions, uh, I finally came back to London right. uh, post 9-11. But actually the reality was I was only away probably a couple of nights a week, so it actually worked really well. Mm. But I became a big fish in a small pond, so it was working for a subsidiary of BA called British Airways Regional. Right. We flew a lot of uh, flights out of Manchester, Birmingham and Scotland. And, and my roles progressed, and ultimately I became chief pilot uh, for um, BA Regional. And I'm still the only person in BA's history uh, to have held the position of chief pilot without being a pilot. Um, well, I was just so, going to say that to you. How does that work then? Yeah. Because you've not mentioned in any of this, you've not mentioned learning to fly. No. So how, how do you become a chief pilot if you've not got your wings? So, so chief pilot is actually quite a... Uh, an old term, it's equivalent to a general manager, basically. Okay, right. Um, and the role is very much around, in this context, people leadership. Uh, you clearly have to be technically competent. Yeah. I've spent a number of years holding technical roles within the flight operations department. I was based in Manchester. I've been the base manager in Manchester for a number of years. I was highly regarded by the pilots in Manchester because I got things fixed, I sorted things out, I treated them with respect, but I also understood whilst I couldn't fly an aeroplane, um, either legally or practically, um, albeit I've had to go in a simulator a few times and just about managed to get them back down on the <laughs> runway. Um, I, it was more around a people leadership role and I had the respect of the unions and respect of the pilots. And, uh, you know, uh, I was uh, authorised by the Civil Aviation Authority to hold the position. So, you know, I had to prove that I was competent to do so. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that was a real achievement. Um, you can, people can judge on their own as to how successful that model is. The fact that BA have never put anybody in there again since. But but the, the organisation's changed a lot and, and equally the opportunity uh, for uh, a ground-based person to do it is... is not been um, as hasn't come about as much, but there are a number of airlines now that have followed the model, and uh, and it is very much about how you lead people rather than your own technical ability yeah. to practically fly. Um, so I held that, and then say so nine eleven happened, and that was a big turning point for uh, aviation. Obviously, absolutely, um, yeah. hugely impactful to BA. Uh, BA was six weeks away from running out of cash. Um, we had to go through a major restructure uh, of the airline, a uh, complete retreat from Gatwick. Uh, we decided to shut down our operations in the UK regions and franchise it out. So I was brought back to London um, and uh, put in charge of, uh, well, I had two roles actually. One was we'd bought an, uh, a franchise airline in Gatwick called BA City Flyer uh, and bought that and we're using that to transition uh, into the UK regions, right. uh, but I also held the responsibility for leading all our industrial relations with Balpa, 
uh, pilots union and all our resource uh, planning. So responsibility for then about three and a half thousand pilots yeah. and making sure we had them in the right place. I was also responsible for, for BA's pilot recruitment. So uh, another dubious uh, accolade I have is that I've dismissed more pilots than I recruited in, in my time as head of pilot recruitment because oh. we froze all pilot recruitment post 9-11. So unfortunately there was a few right. didn't cut the mustard and um, uh, had to leave, which is not one of my proudest achievements, but, but we had to restructure uh, yeah. the airline uh, and uh, you know BA survived and thrived as a result mm. um, and that's when I also got my first experience of crisis management I was our department's rep uh, in any significant incidents that occurred um, and then I was encouraged to apply for my first really senior role as general manager operations control uh, which is the role basically running our 24-7 uh, ops center controlling the airlines flying program worldwide uh, and all the crisis management at that point, typically held by somebody who was um, doing it as their, their, you know, their sort of final role before retirement. Okay. Uh, and I was appointed uh, after recruitment process. Uh, I was 33 at the time. So I was the youngest person to have done it by about 20, 20 okay. years or more. Um, I'm just going to stop you there, Andy, if I can. Just, pre just press the pause button yeah, a, a sure. tiny minute because I'm I want to kind of go back to a phrase that you used early on in this story, which was that you were fortunate enough to be chosen to go to Seattle. There's mm. been a, another bit where it's kind of, well, highly regarded and now going into a role a good 20 years. So somebody ordinarily, as you've said, it would have taken them a full career mm. to have built up the knowledge, experience, technical competence to do that role, but you're yeah. doing it at your early 30s. Yeah. So what, what, and this, this might be, some people find this a really uncomfortable question, but I'm not going to apologise for it because I'm really interested. What is it about you that gives people the confidence to put you into the, into these really key roles and give you this level of responsibility quite early on in terms of your career story? Um, uh, do you know what? It, it's, it's a question I often ask myself. Um, <laughs> Um, Why me? <laughs> so either, either blind faith or 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 some very brave decisions. I, I've been incredibly lucky in my career to have um, line managers in senior positions who saw something in me and were prepared to take a chance um, and and were prepared to break the mold in terms of well, just because that's what we've always done in the airline doesn't mean to say that's the the model that's going to work for the future and they they were quite strategic in their vision they could see that I you know I delivered I got things yeah. done I did it I've always worked incredibly collaboratively I've always um, been able to engage with people regardless of their background regardless of their work regardless of my background yeah. and I've never ever um, gone into a role and say you, you must do this because I am manager X or I am manager Y or I'm a graduate or, you know, I know best because I got a degree in engineering or whatever it may be. So how you conduct yourself and how you engage with people, I learned from very early ages right. is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And that then creates a bit of a groundswell of actually that bloke's all right. Uh, yeah. And he gets things done and he treats people well and he's fair. Um, but he doesn't suffer mediocrity 
Um, yeah. Uh, and actually, he's challenging the way we do things to see if there's a better way of doing it. Um, I've also been fortunate in perhaps, I'll say this in jest sometimes, that I've, I've been fortunate enough in my early career to follow people who were perceived not to be doing quite such a good job, and I was able to come in and do a slightly better job. Okay. Um, and then as I got more senior, I was fortunate that I, that I was the first person into a role, so there's nobody to compare me against. So whatever I yeah. did was 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 the best. Um, <laughs> yeah, then, you're setting the bar. Move on. So, but I've also... I'm passionate about what I do, Nina. I, I've, you know, I had a love for aviation. I have a real love for for TFL and 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 public transport, um, and I love the fact that we're delivering for customers, uh, and in, in our case now, yeah. delivering for uh, London. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I have genuinely been fortunate um, in terms of people who've been prepared to take a chance, and and I now. In, in fact, I would say for the last 10 or 15 years in my career when I have been in senior roles, that's exactly what I've done in people. If I've seen something that I think actually they've got real potential, I'm prepared to take a chance on them. You've got to make sure you, they've got the right support around them so they're set up for success. Yeah. Uh, and I've been lucky that that's, that's happened. And being inquisitive, you know, I've, I've never... I've never just done what I've been asked to do. I've always thought about, well, is there an opportunity to do even more or or yeah. make it even better? Um, yeah, I've never been a nine-to-five, just stick to my job description mm. uh, type. Um, and, yeah, my wife and my kids would probably say, and that's probably led to, to me being at work more than I should have been at times. But I think um, having a really strong work ethic but treating people with respect and treating them fairly throughout my career has, has led me in really good stead. Yeah. I think what you've just done in the last three or four minutes in terms of that explanation is kind of career 101. If, if anyone's listening to this in terms of, right, how do I get up the ladder? How do I progress through my career into a senior role where I'm responsible for, you know, lots of people and making things happen. You've just given them a tick list of things to focus on. And and I think so often in historically, it's been around, certainly, you know, my background in banking, it was about going from, oh, you're a grade one and you need to get to a grade five in your clerical, then you move into your, your kind of your management level and then you move, and it's kind of like, well, that's not what we focus on actually yeah. anymore in terms of that whole kind of stakeholder engagement piece that you've talked about that being trusted to to deliver um looking for opportunities to do a little bit more and we're not saying you've got to work 20 hour days and knock yourself out and burn yourself out but but how can i use my initiative how can i do a little bit more than you expected of me um you've, you've given us a brilliant tick list there focus list to say in terms of building my career in any industry sector, actually, what do I need to be doing in terms of my personal characteristics and my work ethic over and above the technical competence that yeah. I'm bringing to the role? So thank you. That's brilliant. No, thank you. No, no pleasure. And I think, you know, two or two, three other very quick points. I've never had a career plan. Never right. I was going to ask you plan. that, actually. No. Right. Um, even when I was coming out of my training at BA and the training manager said, you need to have a five-year career plan, I said, I don't know what I want to do in five years and, and none of us know what this airline will be like in five years. And yeah. I can tell you it was a hell of a lot different five years after I finished my training <laughs> than it was when I, when I finished my training. Um, I only ever had two career goals. One was to be a pilot 
well, you know, failed at that one. Yeah. Um, and second was to try and be a senior manager grade in BA by the age of 30. I, I achieved that at 30. Yeah. Um, and that was purely driven by not being a great thing, but just around time in my life with um, being married, young family, all the rest of it. Um, but my, my number one piece of advice, and I say this, I was doing an um, uh, introductory talk to all our graduates, apprentices and interns who uh, started at TFL a couple of weeks ago. I am a the biggest thing you've got to do when you come to work is you've got to want to get out of bed in the morning to come to work. Yeah. Too many people go to work because they feel they have to, um, not because they want to. Uh, and I've been incredibly, incredibly lucky that pretty well every job I've done, I've thoroughly enjoyed and uh, it's made me excited uh, to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, completely agree with you on that one. And I'd, you know, I've definitely done both. Um, but I came across a, a phrase a few months ago now, but it just keeps coming back to me literally every single day. If you're not changing it, you're choosing it. So if you're waking up in the morning and the alarm's going off and it's like, I really don't want to get out of bed. And that's happening every single day of the week because we all have the odd day, don't we, where we think, Do you mm-hmm. know what, <laughs> we not and say we did. It's kind of like that. If that's a perpetual feeling when the alarm goes off. You need to change it, and I know yeah. it's not it's not that easy. But I absolutely accept your point. Um, you've yeah. got to enjoy it. You've got to enjoy what you do, and and that passion. I've never ever in any industry sector I've worked in, I've never met people who are as passionate as they are in the transport industry. No, ever. no, ever. totally, totally. So where do we go next then after this? Um, after get coming into this role as the um, as the general manager yeah, the control one. early on, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so did that for um, a couple of years, um, restructured how we uh, ran it, um, became much more customer focused, uh, became responsible for BA's crisis management, which I did. So did that from 2004 until I left in 2015. So that's when I lost my hair. Um, because yeah, <laughs> BA had a few crises to deal with. Um, and some of those, some of those could, you know, could make a whole podcast series on their own. So I dealt with everything from you know, severe weather, um, Terminal 5 opening, the A38 crash at Heathrow, uh, the Litvinenko poisoning, um, uh, major IT failures, ATC system failures, uh, you name it, but learned an incredible amount yeah. throughout it. And, and actually, we set up the first ever, I th- believe the first ever, business resilience department in a FTSE 100 in in the UK because we took emergency planning to the next level and turned it into proper business resilience. So by the end, we were responsible for everything from how would BA react in the event that it did, worst case, God forbid, have an aircraft accident with fatalities through to making sure we could cope if the treasury dealing system went down or uh, the the website went down or anything like that. So learned a lot of that, that. My roles then, there were various restructures in BA. My roles grew, so then I became head of operational planning control. That's the role I was in when when both the BA38 crashed uh, Heathrow uh, in January 2007, uh, and then two two months later, Terminal Five opened. So I was I was sitting in the chair of our crisis centre and the one making the decisions about cancelling flights on the day Terminal Five opened. Um, and that was, you know, that was quite a moment in time for BA. Um, but 
yeah, we, we got through it. We handled it well. We actually fixed the issues very quickly with colleagues from Heathrow. And then we, uh, that was also, of course, when the econ economic crash happened. So not 2007, 2008, economic yeah. crash happened. Um, and BA's revenue fell by a billion pounds in the space of six months. Um, so again, we had to restructure. Uh, at the time, Willie Walsh, who was our chief executive, and I was on the executive as an interim director, we made the really novel but brave decision to allow any manager in the company to leave on uh, a severance term, right. uh, regardless of what role they were doing, what experience they had, uh, how good or bad they were, um, and everybody could go, but they all had to make a decision to go by the end of December that year. Right. And anybody who chose to stay um, could absolutely stay, but they were not guaranteed a role. So there was still a risk that they could be made redundant afterwards because we we're going to redesign the organization based on what the organization needed, not yeah. based on the people we had. Uh, I chose to stay. Uh, I was made permanently director of operations, uh, so looking after uh, BA's um, operations at Heathrow, Ops Control, various other mm -hmm. things. And then uh, that developed. Um, we merged with Iberia to form International Airlines Group. Um, Keith Williams, uh, who you'll know, uh, yes, as in yeah. Williams Review, uh, yeah. who was CFO, became CEO. He asked me to take on a greater responsibility. So then I took on responsibility for BA's worldwide airport operations and what we call user charges. So I had about 9,000 people, uh, two billion pound cost base and direct control of all of BA's operations. We then bought British Midland Airways. Uh, so we led that merger mm -hmm. and integration at operational level. Uh, we were a big sponsor for the Olympics. So we had to deal with all of that as well, which was a great uh, occasion. And we delivered uh, with the first and only Exco in BA's history to develop our own business plan and deliver it and deliver it a year early. So we dealt through the uh, economic crash, the banking crash, um, and grew our revenues, grew our brand reputation, and all the rest of it. Yeah. We then restructured again, uh, and it was at that point when I kind of decided it was time for me to move on. I was being BA's ops director for seven years. Right. Uh, I think I'm still the longest serving ops director in BA's history. Um, but I could start to feel it was a time for me to um, probably move on. I right. was starting to. I was starting to be. Although I was only forty-four, I started to feel I was now one of the old laggards who was starting <laughs> to say no to some of the younger um, right. people coming in. Um, it was taking its toll uh, on work-life balance, um, yeah. and uh, came to agreement there was no natural successor for me because the role has sort of grown around me. Mm. Um, so we agreed that I would help with the restructure operations, and then I left on good terms uh, with the airline in, in May 15. Uh, and I had a, a, the most fantastic 26 years at BA. I'm still very mm. proud uh, of BA. It's had some uh, some challenges since, um, but very proud of what we did. And I was also very lucky during that time, I uh, I was appointed to the board of NATS, National Air Traffic Services, yeah. as the BA rep. So I was on the board there for uh, eight years and chaired their Remco and did various things with them. Uh, and also sat on the board of City Flyer Express. So out of the uh, remnants of the airline that moved to the, to the UK regions, we set up a new airline called BA City Flyer at London City Airport, Yeah. and then sat on the board of that for four years, which built a corporate strategy for that. 
and the refleeting program. So that airline is now the biggest airline operating in London City right. under the BA brand and has, has proved to be extremely successful. Mm. Um, so left BA in, in spring uh, 15, um, did a little bit of consultancy, still carried on on the Nats board on behalf of BA for another year and then was approached to join Menzies Aviation, part of the John Menzies right. PLC. Yeah. Uh, as executive vice president for UK, Europe, Middle East, Africa, and India. So running the, the PL for that region, running the operations, the safety responsibility. That was about 15,000 colleagues across, I can't remember exactly how many countries, but about 20 countries. Wow. Um, and over the two and a half years I was there, we doubled the profit, uh, improved the safety, improved the customer satisfaction. Um, and did some really great stuff, opened some new businesses. Um, but uh, then, um, you know, we had a, a separating of our ways between me and the chief exec um, right. on strategic direction. Um, so I left. Um, probably the biggest uh, favor anybody did for me actually was um, sort of forcing me out of aviation in uh, sort of mm. spring 19. Yeah. I was approached by. Uh, CFL, uh, see if I was interested in being managing director of LU. And my wife often says, you you always said the only place you would consider going to outside of aviation would be the underground. Because really? of, right. yeah, because of, yeah, I just think it's the most amazing organization and does great things for the city and you know, interested in the engineering that side of it. Yeah. And I was very lucky, Mike Brown, who was then commissioner uh, he and I had worked closely together when he was COO at Heathrow for a couple of years. Um, so we knew each other, went through a process. I was lucky enough to be awarded or, or be offered the, the role and started in November 19. So just four months before the pandemic, yeah. um, running the tube uh, and then taking on the responsibility for the operational readiness for the Elizabeth line. So that was a big move uh, big from yeah. aviation into uh, public transport in the rail sector with no rail knowledge whatsoever, except as a customer. Um, yeah. uh, or the the T five transit um, between uh, the main terminal there and the satellites. Yeah. Um, but really exciting opportunity. Um, some great people, and then of course the pandemic struck, um, and it was sort of the natural thing that myself, with my operational knowledge and my crisis management background, mm. along with Gareth Powell, who was then managing director of surface transport. Yeah. Uh, subsequently left TL, TFL is now running Stansted Airport, um, that he and I were the two executives charged under Mike to basically run the whole of TFL's operations during the pandemic, mm. um, making sure we could keep our services running, how we dealt with the ever-changing requirements of uh, lockdown and uh, regulations and social distancing and all the rest of it, put a whole structure in place uh, around governing that. Uh, put a whole structure in place along with other colleagues around engaging with our trade unions and our colleagues to make sure we did everything possible to put them at the heart of our decision making. And I'm incredible, you know, that was without doubt the hardest I've ever had to work. You know, we were doing, uh, Gareth and I were doing 16, 18 hour days, seven days a week um, for about four and a half months, I think, yeah. um, to get through that. And then, of course, the consequence of that is our revenue and passenger numbers fell by about 95%. So then we yeah. had to go to government and uh, talk to them about funding. And, you know, there's much documented about how the funding games we had with that. Absolutely. But learned a huge amount about um, 
politics with a big P, dealing with both central government and local government, City Hall. We had incredible support from the deputy mayor at the time, Heidi Alexander, mm. and also Sadiq. Um, and, you know, I think uh, they they could see that TFL was in safe hands uh, under Mike's mm. leadership, mine and Gareth Runny of the day-to-day. And I'm still incredibly proud of, of what we achieved during that time. You know, we yeah. kept all the lines running. Um, and, you know, we were carrying 100,000 NHS workers a day on the tube and on yeah. the bus network. And if we hadn't done that, the implications would, are just not worth thinking huge. about. Absolutely so, huge. Um, learnt, learnt a huge amount. Mm. And then Mike, Mike announced he was leaving. Andy Byford then joined, um, and uh, which was great. Uh, and then we got the longer term uh, agreement. We got the Elizabeth line open, uh, which is just the most amazing railway in the world. Yeah. Um, and then Andy announced he was going and uh, quite suddenly, uh, quite yeah. surprisingly. And I was asked if I would step into the interim position. I'd always said I'd never wanted to be commissioner. It was far too political a role. Why would I want to do that? Mm. Um, and when I when I went home to tell Joe, my wife, that, I'd been asked to do it. She said, there's no way you're doing that role. You've said you will never do that role. <laughs> and we literally didn't speak for about three days because she was so angry with me because she was really worried about the impact it was going to have. Yeah, um, understandably. But, you know, we talked it through and it was kind of a sort of try before you buy on both sides. Um, mm. So, I, you know, it was agreed I'd do it for at least a year, depending on what happens with the recruitment. And then obviously yeah, I actually... I've thoroughly enjoyed it from day one. Right. Uh, you know, TFL is the most amazing organisation. You know, the largest integrated public transport authority in the world. Mm. Uh, our people do the most incredible things day in, day out. Uh, and I'm hugely honoured and privileged uh, to now be doing the role on a permanent basis. Uh, I'm really, really excited about uh, what the future holds. Um, and uh, I would encourage anybody who's listening uh, to this podcast. Mm. Uh, if you want a role in transport, there is nowhere better than TFL to come and have a career uh, or come and experience it. Um, it's just a brilliant organisation and we're going to make it even better. Fantastic. A rallying cry. I love it. I love it. <laughs> even with it, even bearing in mind what you said about the role that you're doing, that there's politics with a big P. I, I had no idea, you know, until 10, nearly 11 years ago when I started working with the transport industry. I had no clue before that how um, influenced the industry is by political decisions. Yeah. And, and you know, we're seeing that a lot at the moment, aren't we? And we have been over the last three years significantly, I guess, and since the pandemic. But I think that the point that you make there around um, carrying the NHS workers, this is one of the things that I wish as, a, as an industry, as a whole industry, we would get better at in terms of letting the general public know very, very clearly what social value the transport yeah. industry provides. Because we hear lots around how much the transport industry costs the taxpayer, but we're yeah. not really hearing very much about the value that it adds to the economy and getting people where they need to be. And that example yeah. you've shared there with the NHS workers is a cracking one. 
because nobody would have been able to get to work. 100,000 people wouldn't have been able to get to work if you hadn't kept the tube running and the buses yeah. running in London. So, yeah. um, oh my word, I could get my soapbox there, but I won't because this is this is this is your <laughs> podcast, not mine. Um, we're going to move on, Andy. Thank you so much. There's so much in there. So much to learn. Certainly not from my perspective. You haven't. I could carry on listening to you for hours, quite honestly. Um, I'm going to give you three wishes. This is where I get my magic wand out and I say to you, if you could have anything, if you could change anything, transform anything within the transport industry to make it better, what three things would you choose? Wow. Um, so in no particular order. Uh, Coming from the background I have in Avia, you know, I've, I've worked with trade union colleagues for many, many, many years. Um, and I've made it my priority when I joined LU and now as TFL to make sure I have a good and open relationship with senior officials in the trade unions. And and, and I do, uh, along with Fiona Brunskill, who's my chief people officer, the two of us have a very good, honest, open relationship with trade unions. The first wish I would have is that we could just work collaboratively together, management and trade unions across the industry to do the right thing for the members and the staff in the railways yeah. and the transport industry, but to deliver for our customers as well uh, and not default to every time management table something, the answer is no, we're going to go on strike. And that's a huge generalization. Um, and there are many, many brilliant uh, trade union representatives across our industry but the learned behavior probably driven by some of the politics is whatever management come up with the answer is no yeah. and, and actually my, my big biggest request is that I just want the trade unions to represent the majority of their members views um, and work with us so that we can deliver real job security and certainty for mm -hmm. colleagues across the industry. Yeah. TFL is slightly different to the rail sector, but the principles are the same. And it would just transform our industry, it would transform our financial situation, it would transform morale, uh, and it would transform the reputation mm. um, quite quickly. So that would be number one, slightly controversial, yeah. particularly to some colleagues who might be listening, but, yeah. but I generally think we could work together and, and we could solve so much. I agree. Um, the second one would be, um, and this is TFL specific, to really agree and have a long-term capital funding settlement so that we can continue yeah. to invest in the new rolling stock, the new signalling, the road infrastructure uh, that we need to continue to drive London forward. Yeah, we made yeah. real progress, seeing the benefits on the Elizabeth Line, seeing the benefits on the Northern Line extension, Barking Riverside extension, new trains under test in Germany now for the Piccadilly line, which will be transformational, new trains under test for the DLR. But you know, the Bakerloo line trains are nearly as old as I am. They're the oldest trains running in uh, public service in the country, and we still don't know if we'll have the funding to replace them. Um, we have the most brilliant team of engineers and maintainers, mm. but it's just not good enough to be running trains that are 51 years old mm. and are probably going to be in service for at least another 10 years. Yeah. Um, so that would be the second wish. Yeah. 
And I think, um, to be fair, that whilst you say it is definitely TfL specific, I think there will be lots of people from um, the rail and the bus industry listening to this yeah, who are saying, yeah. actually, we'd like a bit of that long-term certainty as well so that we can, uh, you know, make the investment. And, you know, we're seeing some of that, aren't we, with Avanti got their nine-year contract yeah. um, agreed uh, last week. So it's kind of, we're seeing some of that, but I think we could we could see a bit more of it. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, the third wish is really quite a tricky one. I... Um, I think it would, it would be more around um, how we help transform our industry to be much fairer, greater equity, and more diverse. Um, uh, you know, we have, again, TfL, we have incredible diversity amongst our operational colleagues, gender, ethnicity, faith, uh, sexuality, whatever it may be. But we're not doing enough as an industry to encourage um, people to join it. We're certainly not doing enough to encourage people to go into STEM careers. Um, and we are collectively, unfortunately, too many of us in senior positions look like me and talk like me. Um, and you know, as a middle-aged uh, white bloke, um, you know, there's, there's many of us who are good. But we have got to make sure as senior leaders, we are pulling through the organizations and through our organizations, the hidden talent uh, or the not so hidden talent to make sure that we're really driving that diversity of thought for the future. Um, so that you know there are people in their late 20s, early 30s who get the same opportunity that I did you know, 20 years ago. Um, and then how do we do that cross industry? Because again, we're quite siloed in in what we do yeah. tfl rarely gets talked about in the context of the rail sector yet we carry more rail passengers than any other than the whole yeah. lot put together yeah. um so how we do greater collaboration across and we are getting better at that um, yeah. but i think you know i would love to be i'd love to be looking back um from wherever i might be in 10 years time and say look there's there's the legacy we've got a really diverse senior leadership in tfl yeah. um who are really making a difference and doing a far better job than I did when I was running the organisation. We've got heated agreement from me on that one, absolutely. And it's something which I, you know, we're definitely banging a drum about in my business and and kind of doing what we can do to support our clients with with their diversity in terms of the shortlist that we provide them. I think the fact that you've got that level of awareness and also that you've quite clearly got that passion to pay it forward because you recognize you've used the word lucky so many times during this conversation in terms of you've been lucky in your career but what you're recognizing is that you've been given opportunities you've been recognized for the potential that you had not just for what you've already done and being able to see all of that and then pay that forward into your own colleagues that you're working with at TfL, whether that's at kind of senior, middle and, and operational level. Um, I mean, that's a really good starting point, Andy. Yeah, um, thank you. So final bit, final bit before I let you go. Um, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What motivates you? So if you're kind of feeling a bit like, oh, need a bit of inspiration, need a bit of get, get up and go, where do you go for that? What's your, what's your source of inspiration? Uh, well, as I, as I said, I, I genu genuinely love my job um, and really feel that I am making a difference um, and I'm inspired by 
by what we do and what our people in TFL do. Uh, I am uh, I'm very lucky. I have a wonderful family. Um, my, three, my three kids are growing up now. They're all uh, either just finished uni or just started uni or in between. So um, doing what I can to support them is a big motivator. Uh, I'm also a passionate rugby fan, uh, ex-rugby player. Um, so uh, hoping amongst hope that England will do well in the Rugby World Cup is a key motivator at the moment. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's genuinely around, I work with some really fantastic colleagues, you know, my team, some of whom you, you just met uh, this mm -hmm. afternoon. I, I'm, yeah, I generally want to come to work to see the colleagues I work with. Um, I generally want to go out on the network and see our customers and talk to our frontline colleagues. Um, you know, I, I say it a lot deliberately because we are just so incredibly lucky that we have 27,000 direct colleagues who do the most amazing things 24-7, day in, day out, across our organization. And then up to about 80,000 others doing it on TFL's behalf. Yeah. Um, and without them, this city would not be moving. There would be nobody would be able to do business. Nobody would be going to hospital appointments. Um, the economy would not be growing. Um, and I've never really had that sort of social purpose before because I worked in the yeah. private sector. I was you know, passionate about aeroplanes and love going to the airport. But, yeah. but now it's around actually you genuinely feel you're making it, that we are making a difference. Um, Absolutely. And that's a big motivator in the morning. Yeah, fantastic. Andy Lord, Transport Commissioner, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm so grateful to you for making the time. Um, and I'm 100% confident that our Intuitive Insights audience are going to really enjoy it too. So thank you. It's a real pleasure, Nina. Thank you for asking me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. My huge thanks to Andy for a really fascinating and inspiring conversation. My cheeks were aching from smiling at the end of this one and it was a Friday afternoon when we recorded and it lifted my energy just in time for the weekend. Absolutely spot on. Thank you, Andy. <laughs>